University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. All right, raise the hands in confession. Who went and downloaded David Bowie this week? Not a single person? Wow, that's disappointing. All right, take a look at the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 11. Now, last week we began this eight-week series on the book of Nehemiah. This is a fascinating book. Scholars have called it a theological narrative. It tells us that the time of Israel is in exile uh, due to the Babylonian and Assyrian empire. And soon the Persian king, after many generations, begins to release the Israelites back to Israel. And we learn that Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king, has his brother come and visit him and tells him of this news that Jerusalem lies in ruins. And we learn that Nehemiah is burdened with great distress. He mourns and prays to God. Nehemiah wanted to make a difference in the world. Nehemiah felt this burden. And we left this conversation right at that place of contemplation, a place of hearing this news and bringing a word of suffering and brokenness and hurting of our world, of our community, and of ourselves and of our neighbors to God. And so we pick back up in Nehemiah chapter 1, the latter part of verse 11 that reads, I was a cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes. Now, is this going to be one of those really annoying sermons where Andy preaches out of less than two verses? Yes, yes it is. It's going to be one of those sermons. This is why scripture is so fascinating. We pick up on something that is absolutely essential to us. The first thing we need to understand from this text is something that we'll more focus on next week, which is the vocation of Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer for the king. Much like his forebearer Daniel, Nehemiah will be in the Persian palace. He will be a person of great importance because he's literally one sip away from allowing the king to die or to not die. And here is a person who seems of great insignificance. And what I want you to hear from this text, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, is this. It does not matter who you are or what you do for a living. You don't have to be a CEO or a great politician to make a difference. The Bible teaches us that even the most insignificant positions, a cupbearer to the king, can great, have great significance for the world. Now the second thing I want us to see is that time has passed. When we first read in Nehemiah chapter 1, it said it was in the month of Kislev, which is the Hebrew equivalent of November to December. However, the narrative wants us to see that time has passed, about four months. It says we're now in the month of Nisan. It's the uh, Assyrian and Babylonian equivalent of March to April. So this raises a very important question. What has been Nehemiah doing with this news for the last four months? He's prayed, but what else? What is he doing about the injustice that's taking place In Jerusalem, it raises the question, was Nehemiah stuck? In 2011, Ernest Cline introduced us to the world of of Ready Player One. It tells the story of 25 years into the future where the economy has crashed, leaving very few with, uh, with a lot of resources and a lot with very few 
resources. And to escape this life of, of poverty and, and the mundane, uh, m- most citizens of the world enter into what's called the oasis. It's a virtual reality simulator that allows people to use uh, visors and haptic technology. And since the oasis is, is free to everyone, most people fill their days in the simulated world, playing games in an alternative reality. And, and why not? What, what's the alternative? Additionally, instead of trying to fix the world's problems, corporations join users in promoting this false narrative of a world, narrative of a world that's found inside the oasis. Everyone is stuck in the moment of their calamity with an attitude of, of laziness and meaninglessness. Last week, we discussed just how much the narrative of Nehemiah compares to the context of the church today. While we must face the facts that we live in a post-church culture, the world continues to spiral in a place of injustice and famine and food scarcity, political corruption and racism and homophobia and unspeakable acts. And as we were mulling over this first chapter of Nehemiah, we must contemplate that there is bad things happening in our world. Things that just cycle through our news in 24 hours, it's here today and gone tomorrow with the next big story that takes place. And to the inner cynic within us, we begin to look at such things and say, why does our world have a tendency to gravitate to one set of news, to just drop it and bring something else in? And what it begins to raise within us is a sense of ambiguity and apathy and indifference. Ambiguity usually expresses itself in an inability to know what to do, who to talk to to make a difference, and a resolution of just, let's just wait and see what will happen. Ambiguity is uncertainty. And ambiguity sinks into indifference. Unchecked indifference transforms into apathy. And apathy at its core is the absence. It's a suppression of passion and emotion. It is a lack of concern about things that really do matter. Apathy uh, is a voice within us that tells us that we shouldn't care, that we can't make a difference. It blinds us from doing and becoming more. Aristotle wrote that tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of a dying society. It's in response to temporary heartbreak and tragedy that gives way that apathy begins to take root within our soul. As one author put it, apathy is the capitulation or submission of personhood, the refusal to grow, to become who we really are. It's the ultimate cop-out, the insistence that things will never change, so why should we? You see, apathy goes deeper than just a, a lackadaisical tendency and shallow commitments to change. Apathy takes root within our soul. It latches on to the very fabric of who we are. It determines our perspective and our drive and our compulsion and convictions. And like Nehemiah, we can be stuck. Almost everyone in this space has in some form been affected by cancer. Um, My meemaw and granddaddy both died of cancer. My granddaddy battled three separate times throat and mouth cancer and eventually uh, succumbed to death in 2003. And my meemaw was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died three weeks later. Cancer is, is, a, is a vicious plague within our body. It starts so small, and it begins to ravage the body, filling the very person. Cancer is the number two killer in developed countries and number one in undeveloped countries. And despite the fact that we spend millions of dollars a year on research and new forms, 
cancer is discovered each year. Cancer keeps finding a way to run its course within our lives. Apathy and indifference is, is like a cancer. It starts off so small, and then it begins to work its way into the very fabric of our mind and our heart and our soul. Indifference and apathy is a toxic potion. So when we hear of the starvation of children in some distant land, or another mass genocide of an unfamiliar population, or the unjust death of someone of a different race, or the unlivable minimum wage of workers, or the poverty of people just on the other side of town from us, it immediately is dismissed with disinterest and cynicism and disenfranchisement and far worse perspectives. And the irony of the circumstances that Nehemiah is mulling over, why Nehemiah feels so stuck in these circumstances, is the very reason that the people were here in the first place. Remember, we talked about this last week, that God came to the people generation after generation with messengers and prophets to tell them that their apathy and indifference is causing the corruption of their society. And the years leading up to the Babylonian invasion, the, the prophet Micah stepped in with this word of God, Am I still forgotten by your ill-gotten treasures? You wicked house, the, the short ephon, which is accursed. Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales or bags of false weights? You rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. The prophets didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> what landed them here? It was not that their religiosity had failed. The injustice that Israel committed generation after generation was extortion, corruption of business practices, cheating, dishonesty, violence and mistreatment of the poor, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. This wasn't God just simply telling the people, you're not worshiping me enough. This was the people acting out of their religiosity that was supposed to be the center of their lives, and they were looking past and committing acts of economic and political and social poison within their society. This wasn't a, a small-scale problem. It was a very large-scale problem. God was not sending Micah to proclaim to the people because of just a, a handfuls of unjust practices. No, this was a systematic, gaping wound within Israel's society. Listen to these words of Micah. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Anyone hungry for lunch? <laughs> Micah is dead serious. He's calling the people to see that they are committing so many atrocities, so many acts of injustice. The Bible talks about justice so much. In the Old Testament alone, the word justice appears 403 times. It's not just seeking justice for things that are done wrong, but it's also the prevention of things that go unnoticed. The word can be translated in such a way that justice is ensuring everyone who has a need is fulfilled. That just of society are not just providing for those who are in positions of power, but providing for those who very much are in need. It is caring for those who are oppressed. 
It's echoed in the words of Jesus when he stepped forward and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to release the oppressed, to recover sight for the blind, and to set the captive free. Justice defined by God is an invitation to be sharers, to be builders of a deep and rich and kind community and world. And what God wants most is justice, is not our lives that are spiritually separated for how we act in this world, but God is seeking for us who are transformed to go out and to be a people of justice in the world. And we live in a world of injustice. I realize this is not the happiest message that Andy has preached since June of 2018. But too often when we think of injustice, we think of days gone by, of crusades and inquisitions and the transatlantic slave trade and genocide of Native Americans and apartheid and Jim Crow laws. Heinous acts of injustice are not things of the past. It's modern-day kin rear its ugly head today. In America, 1% of the population owns 90% of the wealth, yet receive all these unbelievable tax benefits. And we think that is a political message. Read the Old Testament. That is a very God-centered message. We live in a world where 20% of children in America live in poverty. 40% of African-American children live in poverty. Every day, people who don't have the resources to go and open a bank account are forced to use payday lenders that slam them with these outrageous excess fees of up to 400%. People every day die of preventable and treatable ailments, never to receive medical treatment because they don't have health insurance. In, in corporate America, if you are a woman, go ahead and expect that you're going to get less money and less benefits than your male counterpart. On any given night in America, anywhere between 700 to 2 million people are homeless. 700,000 to 2 million people are homeless. While we claim that we don't have enough, we live in abundance where roughly 3 billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day. Every 20 seconds, a child dies of water-related diseases. We waste millions and tons of food. Only one-third of the population is well-fed. One-third of the population is overfed, and one-third of the population are starving. You see, injustice runs rampant within our world. It's estimated that today that there are 20 million people held in bonded slavery. That's more people in slavery today than the entire transatlantic slave trade. In Africa alone, there are 14 million children orphaned by AIDS. Do we see that justice is happening in our world? In the world of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth, there are creatures called ants. And my non-creative people just had a collective eye roll. The ants live out their days in peace. They are shepherds of the forest. They watch over the trees. They help them through their life and death cycle. It's a life of peace, of maintaining the forest. But then when war came to their doorstep, they were parlayed by two hobbits who called them to act. And so the ants gather in a council to decide whether or not they would interfere in the troubles of humankind. And after conferring for what seems like a lifetime, the ants decide that they have no business in the affairs of others and will not act. It's only when it is revealed to them that the forest is being destroyed to provide resources for this war that the ants decide that they are ready to move and act. What we must begin to see is that injustice that happened 
in our community. Injustice that happen in our state, around the country, and around the world, it's not relative to us. As a people who live in the richest nation, who live in the most secure and comfort, injustice that happens on the other side of the town is still injustice to us. A village of children starving in Yemen is a blip on the map, but a beloved celebrity that dies of cancer seems like it's a national tragedy. The war against terrorism is raging and, and, and doing things of unthinkable acts, but then we consider the hundreds of thousands of innocent people who have died as we fight against terror in this world. When the people of Syria are caught up in a civil war, the results of, of thousands of people dying, we don't consider it because it's not within our borders. Justice isn't relative. Justice is something that we must see that happens around the world. And God does not stand for injustice. The very people who are sitting in Babylon are there because they looked past the injustice of their society. Nehemiah is in a place of mourning. He's in a place of prayerful contemplation. What will he do? Going back to verse 2, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. See, what we are witnessing in the narrative of Nehemiah is a shift from prayerful contemplation to action. Nehemiah had prayed, and oh, did this man pray. And while it's easy for us to read the text of Nehemiah and just assume for four months he sat on his keister and did nothing about the situation, we also must come to see that what we must do, what we must discern to act as our society is facing injustice also demands that we enter into a time of prayerful contemplation, that God reveals to us what we must do. That same text from Micah that was so happy earlier, Micah also proclaims these powerful words in his letter. He says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, Micah is proclaiming this awful message where he talks about stripping off the flesh and cooking people. It's a really gross passage. But he also gives them the solution. He gives Nehemiah the solution. He gives us the solution. It doesn't begin with thinking that we can, as individuals, walk out the door and solve all of the world's problems. What does Nehemiah and what does Micah call us to? It brings us to God. It begins with God. Because God is the source of justice. God is the God of all mercies. Psalm 89 declares, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord. They walk in the light of your countenance. You see, justice and mercy are two powerful lifestyles, two powerful characteristics that can well within us, but it begins with us humbly walking with God. This term walk is such an intimate term that is used here. It's this same term that's used in, in relationships we see within Scripture between a husband and a wife, between God and God's people. It's the idea that we walk alongside of God to learn God's character, to learn God's ways, to seek God in all that we do. And as God begins to walk with us, we learn what justice is. 
we learn what mercy is. We learn what compassion is and why we are called forth into this world. But it begins with walking with God. So here we sit, like Nehemiah, with the news of a world that we are facing. When I look at the news every single day, to me it seems so insurmountable of the injustice that we see in our community and around the world. But what will we do? Will we stick around just in mourning? Will mourning lead us into ambiguity and apathy and indifference? Will we be stuck? Or will we turn to God through contemplation? Will contemplation lead us to act? To act in mercy, to act in love, and to act in justice? Like Nehemiah, we sit with the news of the world around us. What will we do?